Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Talking OTC Commodities podcast series. Brought to you by the Global Commodities Team at EEX Group. Hi, and thanks for joining the latest episode of Talking OTC Commodities, brought to you by EEX Group. I'm Michael Mervyn-Jones, and you're all very welcome to our our first podcast of 2021, uh, which is a bit of a milestone for us, actually, as it's um, our 10th episode of Talking OTC Commodities, and they said we'd never last. Um, Happy to say that joining me today to celebrate the fact that we've finally broken into double figures are the two co-creators and and regular contributors to Talking OTC Commodities. First up, we have Richard Heath, Head of Business Development for the Global Commodities Business here at EEX. Hi, Rich. Hi, Michael. And joining us live from Singapore, uh, we have Erland Engelstadt, Senior Business Developer uh, for the EEX Global Commodities Business and the related Asia markets. Hi, Erland. Hello, guys. Good to be with you. Now, if you work in the commodity sector, you'll undoubtedly be aware that the topic of sustainability continues to dominate the headlines around the world, with the central theme of decarbonisation playing an ever-increasing role in the commodity sector. But how has this affected the shipping industry so far? Today, we want to explore the role of decarbonisation in shipping and specifically look at the role that decarbonisation plays in shipping right now, the potential scenarios and solutions as to how it will evolve in the future, examine how these current, I guess you could call them theoretical solutions, could work in practice, and finally discuss EEX's role and remit as facilitators of change when it comes to sustainable shipping. So guys, there's lots to discuss. Um, I guess we need to dive straight in. Rich, I'll come to you first um, to set the scene for the listeners. When it comes to decarbonisation in shipping, where are we now and, and how big a role does it play? It's a big topic and it's going to play a really, really big role. So I think, I mean, setting the scene, as you say, let's start just by looking at the, the scale of the shipping industry and the current carbon emissions. Um, many people listening to the podcast will be very, very familiar with shipping, but for those that are not, this is a massive industry, both in terms of breadth, in size, geographical scope, in, in any way that you want to measure it. So, you know, approximately 80% of world trade is carried by sea, and this works out to something over 11 billion metric tonnes of goods every single year, or in shipping terms, we often measure demand in something called tonne miles, which is the demand for transport, 60 trillion tonne miles. It's absolutely massive. Um, and this boils down to over 100,000 merchant vessels in the global fleet. We've just crossed that milestone 
fairly recently if you measure vessels over 100 uh, gross tonnes or a carrying capacity of 2 billion deadweight. So an absolutely huge industry. Now, from the carbon perspective, it's probably worth starting by saying that shipping is a relatively clean mode of transport. Certainly it is less carbon intensive than both road and air. But because of the sheer size of the industry, the carbon emissions are, are also large. So um, carbon emissions from shipping make up approximately 3% of all global emissions. So if you wanted to drill this down to compare it to countries, the shipping industry emits the same amount of carbon per annum as Germany or Japan. And the important thing is that this is forecast to increase. So increase by 120% by 2050. And that means that if other industries were to fulfill their current plans to decarbonize, by that time, shipping would represent 10% of all global emissions. So clearly, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here. Right now, the only legally binding agreements that we have in this space is targets put forth by the IMO, of which there are currently two. IMO 2030, which is a 40% reduction in carbon intensity versus 2008 levels. And this could be anything between 400 to 500 million tonnes per annum, depending on the size of the fleet and, and supply. And a 70% reduction by 2050. So we're looking at large volumes of carbon that need to come out of this industry you know, certainly in the next nine years and then over the longer time scale to meet these targets. I think it's important to say here, Rich, that the the environmental initiatives in shipping, it's not a new concept, right? It's absolutely not. So um, the main IMO convention, the MARPOL convention, which is the prevention of pollution um, by ships, actually was originally adopted in 1973. So it's not a it's not a new thing at all. Um, it's periodically updated and new parts are added to to the convention. So you know initially it covered prevention of pollution by oil, and then it had noxious liquids, harmful substances, sewage, rubbish, all sorts of other annexes added to it. Um, and the most recent one, Annex Six, is the prevention of air pollution from ships. And so. This covers sulfur, nitrogen, other gases, and of course now greenhouse gas emissions. So for those in the industry, the notable thing that you would have seen about this recently is IMO 2020, um, which was a big reduction in the sulfur content of, of maritime fuels. And it's something that maybe we could look at as a little bit of a guide to potentially the future for carbon reductions in shipping. So... When IMO 2020 was first announced, there was a huge number of options mooted for how these were going to be achieved. Um, but in the end, really, there were only two viable solutions, and that was the fitting of exhaust scrubbers to ships to remove sulfur after combustion or uh, burning compliant fuels with a much lower sulfur content. And so even though these two choices crystallised quite early, I think, in the discussion, Many people in the industry waited until the absolute last minute to make a decision on, on how to jump. And that's something that I think we need to be aware of in the carbon discussion, because, of course, the reductions are so much bigger and the timescale is relatively, relatively short. 
The other thing about IMO 2020, which is also, I think, a benchmark for carbon reductions, is the impact that it had. You know, it had a huge impact on the whole shipping industry. You know, everything from shipbuilding to chartering. Um, but of course, it hit other industries as well, such as refining, all the way down the supply chain to, to, to bunker supply. And of course, it also had an impact on the futures market. So these are all ideas that we should look at from history that we need to apply when we're thinking about carbon reduction in shipping. Okay, thanks for that, Rich. I mean, I think you've you've set the scene great. And we now have a, a clear picture as to the scale of decarbonisation in shipping today. But but let's look towards the future now. Erland, um, perhaps I can bring you in here. Can you outline some of the options that are currently being discussed as possible solutions uh, for the future when it comes to decarbonisation and shipping? Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. I think this, this is really the big issue, right? What's in that toolbox to either push the industry or pull it into a low carbon reality, if you will. Uh, and I think the, the tabled suggestion right now is really kind of a carrot and stick approach. So they all encompass this pro progressive reduction from that baseline that Rich outlined and penalizing those who emit and incentivizing those who really don't. So there's a few initiatives, both international ones and regional ones at the, at the moment, but the premise is really the same. Uh, it's reduced emissions in line with these higher level targets. Some of them are even in fact set by the United Nations. And the mechanisms are also reasonably similar with you know, a few distinct differences. It's reduce emissions or pay a price for it. So I think indirectly putting a price on carbon, which is this overall theme, it creates a range of incentives to develop solutions. So for the shipping industry, the number one industry that the change uh, that the industry itself could make uh, would be to improve the performance of vessels. So simply, you know, either by carbon capture or sequestration of carbon, uh, it could involve the overall ship design. So how you how you build the ships and how ship owners are instructed to build them. Um, but it could also Im be implementing slow steaming, just in time port calls and kind of optimizing the general operation of the ship. Um, just as an example, just these MARPOL regulations that Rich touched upon on, on the design measures, which is, is uh, you know, regulated through an index for efficient ship designs, the industry is estimated to be able to go 20% off that baseline of uh, emissions uh, based on the baseline year of 2008. So there's plenty of room on the operational and the design and the performance side of shipping to, to make substantial impact uh, to, to reach those targets. Another very big hot topic, uh, which we are, of course, very interested in as an exchange as well, is this emergence of lower carbon or even zero carbon fuels. Uh, among them, you've all heard them, you know, the emergence of LNG as a bunker fuel, uh, the idea of using green hydrogen or ammonia biofuels, uh, methanol, even electric uh, propulsion. And also in the nuclear space, there are initiatives going on. And these fuels have really different merits and I, I think that's where you know the industry itself needs to see what the regulatory outline looks like and and then basically make decisions based, based on that some of these fuels are relatively costly to produce uh, some of them are very difficult to produce 
And some of them don't really allow themselves to shipping that well, and some really aren't really mature enough for commercial applications. And lastly, these fuels also differ massively in the terms of you know how they uh, prospectively reduce CO2 emissions. So I think one of the deciding factors for that will be really it really comes down to regulatory and commercial certainty. So anyone who provides any specialized production infrastructure for these types of fuels, they need some sort of investment certainty that their investment today will pay off in the future. So I think seeking consensus around the industry and having some very clear regulatory certainty into the future is, is very, very important. As regards other factors that could drive, you know, which fuels and which efficiencies are being implemented, I think the idea of externalities and, you know, whether or not these taxes act in a regressive way. So the questions really remain, you know, will regulators and the industry just look at the outright carbon footprint for a particular fuel? Or will they look at the whole life cycle of that particular product? So one example would be that hydrogen is produced in both sustainable and less sustainable ways with very different pollution profiles if you look at it as a whole. Uh, another one could be the human rights issues that you see in the sourcing of battery metals, for example. So it's, it's all down to the question of whether or not the regulators and other stakeholders will be able to agree on what constitutes emissions from shipping. Um, Lastly, you know, how is this emissions footprint calculated? So there's still very many open questions on what constitutes a voyage in shipping. Um, you know, for regional schemes like the ones proposed by the EU, these details matter a lot for the economics of shipping. Uh, are smaller ships who use more fuel per dead weight ton, are they going to be disproportionately affected? And how do you avoid smaller companies with less investment capital to be the losers in this, this whole game. The other major challenge, as I talked a little bit about in the beginning, is this idea of predictability and consensus. So if a scheme develops that sets compulsory standards, the carbon footprint of, on the carbon footprint in fuels, then you, the whole industry could in, in a way sit down with their spreadsheets and calculate with some certainty the present value of their investments today. I mean, I guess when looking at possible solutions, you also have to consider the, the viability of the different options for the different modes of shipping. Right, Rich? Absolutely. So it's definitely not a one size fits all solution at the moment. And we have to think about the fact that shipping is, as I said at the beginning, a very broad industry. Um, and not the same at all, depending on the on the different types. So, to keep this to keep this simple, let's look at shipping categorized into two sides. So, let's take shipping with fixed schedules, so liner, row row, ferries, passenger ships, as as sort of one bucket, um, and then we'll take tramp shipping as the other bucket. So, this is vessels who are you know open open for charters. You know they're commercial future is not fully set. Um, I mean, within that side, we would still have contracts for freightment and other bits and pieces, which do create predictability of, of shipping schedules. But as I say, we'll keep it into two fairly broad, broad buckets. So if we take the first bucket, on this side, this is where we already see initiatives on zero fuel. So as an example, in the last few weeks, Maersk has been in the press 
with the new building of the first methanol-powered container feeder ship. And in fixed schedule shipping, these sort of initiatives are a little bit easier because the commercial operation of the ship is very, very predictable. You know, you know, not in every case, but mainly where the ship is going to be at a certain time into the future, the geographical range in which that ship is going to operate. And that creates the ability to partner with people to create the bunker or port infrastructure necessary to provide these fuels to these ships. So that's how we can see a, a methanol power container ship. That's why um, initiatives such as electric ferries are being suggested because of these fixed schedules and you know knowledge of where the ship is going to be operating geographically. Now, tramp shipping is more unpredictable. Um, you know, the ship owners and operators are looking for the best commercial operation of their ship and they will take cargoes wherever they are, um, you know, within certain ranges. Um, but generally, they're very, very flexible on what they're doing. So when we look at initiatives such as zero fuels here, we have the big question of the bunker infrastructure. I mean, and we could we could liken this to electric cars, right? When electric cars first came around, there was very few places to charge them up. And you wouldn't drive off on a long journey without knowing whether there's somewhere you could stop and charge your car. And exactly the same is true of shipping. If you have an LNG powered ship, you need to know that you can operate it where there is a place where you can fill that ship up with LNG bunkers. And for newer fuels, that problem is even more severe because you know LNG bunkering infrastructure is growing um, zero fuels are, are very, 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 very new. So that's a big question. Um, when you look at regional initiatives such as the European ETS, you know, this is a question as well. I mean, as a, as a ship owner or operator, do I want to um, get ready to participate in such a scheme or even potentially hedge my exposure in such a scheme beforehand if I don't know that my ship is ever going to call at an EU port? You know, that's a, a very, very difficult question. And of course, when it comes to uh, retrofitting these ships, let's say we're going to have a new propulsion system or we're going to retrofit them to carry a new fuel. This obviously has a lot of cost, you know, both a capital cost, but also an operational cost because your vessel will be out of service for a period of time. And now when we look at tramp shipping, you know, it's a hugely competitive market. If I, as an owner, take my whole fleet out of service periodically to retrofit them all and incur a huge amount of cost, can I recoup that cost in the charter market? You know, if my competitors have not done the same thing, I'm clearly at a cost disadvantage and, you know, trying to charge higher charter um, to recoup those costs may not be commercially possible. And so this is something that speaks to coordination in the industry because if everyone does different things at different times, it could be preventative for any single uh, organization and therefore delay the whole transition. So when we look at the different types of shipping, it becomes quite a complicated picture. Thanks, Rich. So from, from what you're both saying, actually, there certainly seems to be a range of scenarios and a range of solutions. But in order for the decarbonization mandate to move forward, these scenarios need to be workable 
unfeasible in the real world, right? So to look at this on a more practical level, I guess, two questions immediately pop up, pop into my mind. Is there a defined timeline? And how will decarbonisation be financed? Who's going to fit the bill? Thanks, Michael. I think that's that's certainly two very big questions. You know, what is the timeline for this and who's going to pay for it? I read a good quote not too long ago in context of the shipping industry, which said 2030 is tomorrow and 2050 is one ship lifetime away. And I think that's a, it's a good description of both the urgency, but also the, you know, the, the need for long term planning in the shipping industry. So the EU is now looking to decide its first, I guess, iteration of these regional regulations that are, are being proposed, which should give us a very clear indication of a possible emissions trading scheme, which is, I guess, you know, sculpted on the experience with electricity markets uh, in the European Union. Um, I think it's likely that such a scheme would take shape by the middle of this decade, at least from what we can see of the, of the timeline published by the EU. So at the same time, the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, has not only set very explicit targets for 2030 and 2050, like Rich just outlined, but they've also adopted design standards that we talked about a little bit previously. And I think in general, the industry has proved itself to be quite good at self-governance. The IMO did take over 15 years, so there's definitely a need to think long-term about these challenges. But the industry has you know, made a quite smooth transition to the double hull ship design. They've instituted rules for ballast water treatment. And as Rich uh, went into depth about with the IMO 2020 regulations. I think there's a range of factors that really affect that timeline, though. Uh, there are a lot of stakeholder groups that can really affect you know, the speed and the way that this stuff is implemented. Uh, on one side, you have this movement towards ESG and green finance. It pushes financial institutions. It pushes publicly listed companies to, to really actively take part in improving the profile of these various shipping assets. Uh, there are other programs such as port and flag state incentives. And, and a good example of that is the port of Singapore, where we sit, uh, who actively promotes this program called the Green Ship Program, which reduces fees and taxes for any ship owner who either improve their efficiency or move over to those cleaner fuels that we mentioned. There are certainly other incentives that could drive this forward as well in the shipbuilding industry uh, and also in particular with the end user. So an end user with a very high buying power can effectively insist on procuring cargos that have either been offset or have a lower carbon footprint um, outright. Then there's the question of who pays. So the first thing the industry and regulators need to decide on, I think, is who actually is the ultimate emitter of CO2. So the, the shipping world, as opposed to many of these fixed installations in, in the electricity market, has an enormous range of stakeholders. And the shipping world is also a business. So you know the stakeholders in one single ship and in one single cargo can be quite long. Uh, you know, the value chain of a single shipment includes a ship owner, a ship manager, often operators, charters, and also, of course, the end customers, and even bunker suppliers, fuel refiners, ports, and so forth. So I think it's important to note that this really isn't a zero-sum game in terms of cost. 
there will ultimately be some scale in these different solutions, and that will reduce the unit cost of be it fuels or engines and, and ship designs. And this is true from everything from technology, uh, design standards, and so forth. So, and again, this is why this predictability in regulations and standards are so important. The shipping industry is really fragmented. Uh, there's, I think, more than 10,000 individual ship owners on record. Uh, we might not find that complete consensus, but you know, us as an exchange, we will try to consolidate a picture of what the industry wants and then implement you know, solutions as the urgency increases for decarbonizations. Okay, I mean, I think that brings me on to you know the, the next question that, that I have and the last remaining subject that we need to tackle, which is, of course, um, EEX's role um, in the decarbonisation roadmap. Rich, um, I'd like to bring you in here again. Um, could you um, explain our role as an exchange, obviously with a large footprint in both freight markets and the environmental markets, why is this subject of decarbonisation so important to us? And, and what are the next steps for us in the developmental process? Why is it important to us? Um, and the answer to that actually is, is very simple, because it's important to shipping. You know, we are committed to the shipping market. You know, we spent a long time building our product and service portfolio in shipping and building our client base. And really, this gives us a duty of care towards the market, among other things. So, um, you know, this issue is huge for the shipping market. It's going to change every aspect of the market. And therefore, you know, we have a big role in facilitating that change as well. In terms of next steps, I think we could divide this up in, into maybe three parts. And the first one is exactly what Erland has already alluded to. You know, it's about the conversation with the market. And this is where we are most focused at the moment. You know, the more people that, that we can talk to, the more people that talk to each other, the more people that talk about this issue in general, the more we will be able to consolidate that picture of exactly what the industry wants. I think, you know, Erlen's words were, were pretty perfect in that description. Um, the, the second and third step, they actually sort of happen in parallel. So the second step is looking at regional initiatives. So should we see the, the inclusion of shipping in the EU ETS, then there will be a need to help the industry get ready for this. And, you know, as you say, Michael, we have a large footprint in the carbon market. We are the primary auction platform for the ETS at the moment. And so we're perfectly placed to help organisations get ready should they be caught up in that scheme. And that's something that we can you know, also start talking to people about straight away. The third step, um, and this is something also that you know, Erlen mentioned earlier, is the development of new contracts for new fuels. So you know, we have LNG bunkering growing, we have zero carbon fuels in development, um, you know, some of the roles of the exchange are to provide, you know, network and also risk management, price risk management, counterparty risk management. And these new fuels will need these services along the lines that existing fuel oil and other shipping contracts do as well. So, again, we want to work 
very closely with the industry to find the solutions that it needs and offer the services that we have as an exchange for those solutions. So I would just echo exactly what Rich just mentioned. You know, the topic of emissions is definitely not new to the shipping industry. And I think we've seen over the years that self-governance has proved to be a quite efficient mechanism for decarbonization and addressing other environmental issues. The nature of the shipping industry is also very different from a lot of other industries. It has long daisy chains, different contract models, as Rich mentioned, and very long asset lifetimes. And that means really that solutions won't really come about as easy as in other markets. I think an important point as well, which we, we touched upon, is that there's no single solution to the challenge of freight emissions. It needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach with many solutions competing in an open marketplace. And I think the ultimate solutions also need to acknowledge that shipping is in fact actually a small emitter on a ton mile basis. So we need to make sure that these new regulations and requirements don't push a shift in the modality of transport in favor of other more higher emitting transport modes. So lastly, I think I would say EX already are big stakeholders in both the carbon and shipping markets with all its risks and uncertainties. So it's therefore really important that we work as a facilitator of the changes that you've just talked about. We're working continuously to provide products and solutions that fit this new reality for right now and also looking ahead. And we are committed to be an industry partner and will be here as the market evolves into this new and exciting low carbon future. Thank you guys. Personally, I find today's chat really fascinating and I completely agree with you both that the EEX can play a key and, and very central role in facilitating change here. Thanks also to everyone who tuned in to listen. I hope you find this episode as interesting as I did. If you'd like to know more on today's topic, please feel free to reach out to Rich and Erland, um, as usual. We'll make sure to um, include their contact details in the episode notes. And uh, one final point, we'll also be discussing this topic further at Building Markets Together, um, EEX Group's digital conference, which is taking place next month on the 15th of April. All the details, including the full agenda and how to register, will also be included in the episode notes. So, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.